The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife. Save the environment. Save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Uh, while most of us humans are busy making the wheels of global commerce turn in one way or another, there is a rare percentage of us who ensure our world's wildlife and endangered species do not illegally become a part of that commerce. Amongst them, our very own U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Departments of Law Enforcement and International Conservation, another aspect of the thin green line of security between humans and wildlife. Today's episode is the second in a series about the positive actions happening around the world to protect and secure our wild world. The United States, our Fish and Wildlife Service, and Colorado made history on November 14th when six tons of ivory seized within the U.S. borders over the past three decades was crushed at the Rocky Mountain Repository, a very public statement to the world about where the U.S. stands on the issue of elephants. Today, I am honored to have as my guests Edward Grace, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Deputy Chief, Office of Law Enforcement, and Richard Ruggiero, Chief of Branch of Near East, South Asia, and Africa, Division of International Conservation. My guests today represent the fields and specialist expertise of our Fish and Wildlife Service, the law enforcement involved in international conservation programs, and how that ended up crushing ivory on a continent that has never been home to elephants outside of captivity or since the mastodons roamed. Today, like the mastodons, our world's elephants and wildlife populations are facing extreme challenges, many to the point of extinction as a direct result of humans, our activities, and a thirst for power and wealth from exploiting wildlife. With that said, I would like to welcome Edward and Richard. Thanks, Ellie. Thanks, Ellie. Good morning. Um, so there's a million questions I would love to ask each of you, but as we only have an hour first, I would appreciate it if you would uh, introduce yourselves to our listeners, a, a little background and a little bit about yourselves, and then we'll begin to explore the crush and more. Edward, let's start with you. Uh, thanks. You know, I'm the Deputy Chief of Law Enforcement for the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. And the Office of Law Enforcement, we're the ones that are, you know, responsible here in the United States to enforce fish and wildlife criminal statutes, uh, you know, specifically statutes like the Lacey Act, the Bald Eagle Protection Act, 
Migratory Bird Protection Act, Marine Act. Mammal Protection Act, uh, Rhino and Tiger Protection Act, several different statutes like that. Uh, the United States has approximately uh, 200 criminal investigators or special agents. Uh, they're sort of like the detectives on the ground that uh, investigate wildlife crime. Uh, and then we have about 130 uniformed wildlife inspectors who are the frontline uh Enforcement officers that are at the ports of entry here in the United States that are looking for, uh, you know, smuggled wildlife parts and products. Uh, pretty much a little about myself. Uh, I started uh, my background in, you know, biology at, in a college called Loris College in uh, Dubuque, Iowa. That then led me to... Uh, getting my master's degree at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, at which time I then became a game warden in the state of Florida. Uh, that's where I first started wildlife protection uh, enforcement work. Uh, after leaving Florida, I came on with the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, where I was a criminal investigator or special agent in New York City. Uh, then I moved on into Chicago. Uh, after working in Chicago, I came into uh, headquarters where I've supervised our training branch and our special operations unit, which is our long-term undercover operations uh, that look at the syndicates and cartels uh, that are dealing in wildlife trafficking, uh, at which time after supervising those units for a couple of years, I then became the deputy chief of law enforcement for the Fish and Wildlife Service. That is quite a history, so I'm just going to interject a little question here, and then we'd like to hear from Richard. Um, so you, de- evidently from game warden to deputy chief, have had um, some law enforcement training somewhere in there, yes? Yes, I have. All Fish and Wildlife Special Agents uh, attend. We go to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, which is located in uh, Brunswick, Georgia, which is where all federal law enforcement uh, go through their training except for the DEA and FBI. So the first 10 weeks of our training uh, at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, we train along with agents from the Secret Service, uh, U.S. Marshal Service, ATF, uh, other federal agents. And then after that 10 weeks of training, we then have 10 weeks of specialized training which we train our uh, agents in the ability to identify other wildlife species, uh, identify wildlife. Uh, We teach them on the wildlife federal laws, uh, and we teach them, uh, you know, boat handling uh, and other aspects of being a wildlife criminal investigator. So you guys are very seriously jacks of all trades when it comes to uh, our fish and wildlife, both in the U.S. and abroad. Richard, uh, tell us a little about you and your background, please. Well, let me start with um, saying that I'm one of the luckiest people working for the U.S. government because my job is, is always challenging, but is so interesting because I work for the office of international affairs and that covers part of part of that office covers regulations policy cites which is the convention on the international trade of endangered species and um is is basically 
working as the lead agency in the United States government for issues of international wildlife trade. So that's mainly policy and regulations. Um, Ed's office obviously does the law enforcement component of that. Therefore, we work very closely with each other, hand in glove. Now, in our Office of International Conservation, our Division of International Conservation helps partners around the world, um, mainly in developing countries, to conserve their wildlife with special emphasis on certain species um, that have programs mandated by Congress. And um, the shortcut is to take a look at our webpage on fws.gov and navigate through toward international. Um, it's, it's a very complex program that helps raise awareness and capacity, and those are complex subjects in and of themselves, for conservation of things like, of course, African elephants, but also rhinos, great apes, marine turtles, tigers. Um, the, the big endangered species, I think, that are very much in trade, very much endangered, and things, um, species that the U.S. constituency has a particular interest in. My particular focus is on Africa, where I'm the chief of our Africa program. I have a wonderful staff that works very closely with people in the field. Our main emphasis is on the field end, and so what we do is is support in whatever way possible and necessary partners, in this case in Africa, who are on the front line um, of protecting wildlife and working with communities and governments to do that. So my own personal coming here, I've been with Fish and Wildlife, I think, around 15 or 16 years, which is half of my professional career. I've been working on elephants, well, 32 or 33 years, um, so that that at least affords um, not only a bird's-eye view of the situation and having lived with elephants for, oh, about 16 or 17 of those years, that's, that's something I think that helps, but it's also long enough to see trends, which I, I think will be part of our, con, uh, our conversation today, how things are going out there, how changes in the world affect elephants, and how those things affect uh, the quality of life in general in Africa. Um, personally speaking, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Jersey guy and had to figure out a way how to get to Africa. That occurred to me in the 1970s when I was finishing my undergraduate work at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And I was fortunate enough to spend a few years in the Peace Corps in the Central African Republic, specifically working on elephants and rhinos at that time, and followed up with several years of applied work in the field, which consisted of some research, but quite a bit was distracted by the need to do wildlife security or anti-poaching. So I had quite a bit of hands-on experience after Peace Corps doing that, and um, actually during my graduate school period, after which I went to Kenya for a couple of years and taught uh, at the university level. But that was followed by a long stint back in Central Africa. I guess the first cut is the deepest. So I went back um, to Central Africa and lived in Congo, in the Western Congo Basin for quite a few years, about seven years after that. And um, after some work in Zimbabwe, also on elephants mostly, uh, came to Fish and Wildlife Service. And um, now I'm concentrating quite a bit on protected areas, raising capacity, and um, trying to offer as much help as we can muster for our partners in the field. 
Thank you so much, both of you. That was very in-depth, and I appreciate it. And I learned so much just just right through your conversation. So the first question that would come to my mind, and we got an email from a listener, is how does the U.S. operative part, fish and wildlife, get involved in, in the first place in overseas conservation programs and endangered species, as the both, as you were talking about. I certainly understand the overlaps, but how did that begin? I mean, that, that we're working with uh, developing emerging worlds, especially today as the world has changed. How did that bridge first begin? Well, it, some of that is, is congressional mandate. Okay. Um, certainly, Ed can speak to other aspects, but my first response would be that that um, members of Congress, and I, certainly reflective of the U.S. constituency of, of of people in the U.S., realize that the United States has a great global responsibility. Uh, part of that is because we're a, a market for wildlife, but also because we're a powerful and influential country. And as part of our, shall we say, responsibilities. Um, there were congressional acts put forward by Congress, beginning, of course, with the African Elephant Conservation Act, and that was 1989. So it's going back quite a while. And there are legislative portions of that regarding um, trade of, of um, elephant products to the United States that Ed can speak about. But um, it also mandated the African Elephant Conservation Fund, which was the first of several provided by Congress that enables us, in fact, mandates the Fish and Wildlife Service through the Department of the Interior, as I described before, to work with partners in the field uh, for elephant conservation and management. So there, there is a, a congressional mandate for much of the work that we do. Edward, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, and I would echo a lot of what uh, Richard is saying. Uh, I think one of the responsibilities is, you know, the United States is uh, the second largest consumer of wildlife products in the United States, uh, second only to China. And and because we're such a large consumer of wildlife parts and products, you know, the United States bears a responsibility to make sure that this trade in wildlife parts and products doesn't, you know, result in the isn't a detriment to other species or results in, you know, the possible extinction of other species. So from a law enforcement point of view, uh, we need to help make sure that uh, through both international invest criminal investigations and domestic criminal investigations that, you know, U.S. citizens are not either unknowingly or knowingly contributing to, you know, the... Uh, possible uh, detriment of a species. Okay. Excellent. So uh, I, what I'm hoping our listeners have just realized is that our U.S. Fish and Wildlife does have uh, quite an international conservation uh, series of programs, it's fo also focused on the African and Asian elephant. And please do visit their website, fws.org.gov, correct? And, yes, indeed. Yes, and um, in preparation for today's show, I and for last week's crush, which we'll get to in a minute, um, I certainly went through 
your website, and there is a tremendous, tremendous amount of information there for the general public and the layperson to understand, uh, to, to get a better idea of what it is our U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service does beyond you know, checking your permits as a game warden or um, following around and, and seeing what's happening out there in the field in, in our ranch lands where our ranch lands uh, converge with wild lands. So let's get down to this. Uh, last week we made history. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, crushed six tons of ivory in outside of Denver, Colorado. Uh, first question on that is why did we crush ivory and the statement that we were making, I think we sort of answered that. And then why Colorado? So um, I guess the first part of that would be Edward, it was a very bold statement for uh, the U.S. to make. And then, um, Richard, you know, what statement were we trying to make? Or maybe I have that reversed. Go ahead, well, I, I think, the, you know, the main reason the United States crushed the ivory is, you know, we believe it's important to destroy ivory that was seized as a result of illegal activities. You know, by destroying this ivory, we've sent a clear message to these criminal syndicates and cartels that are involved in the illegal ivory trade that the United States is going to do whatever we can to disrupt these criminal syndicates and organizations. And, and from a law enforcement point of view, what it does is it, it's very difficult to run a criminal investigation when there's a legal market out there uh, where this illegal ivory can be laundered in the illegal market. So we're, we're also trying to make it easier for law enforcement to be able to continue to disrupt these uh, syndicates and cartels. So let me ask a quick question. Um, we're talking international syndicates and cartels, and I, I know from my work many people are aware that this is what's happening because of what's going on the news, but I'm not sure that they're aware that these syndicates and cartels could be or are operating in the U.S.? And, and they do operate in the United States. I mean, what you need to comp- – what you – do to compare it is you, you sort of look at it like uh, a drug cartel or a drug syndicate. And instead of drugs as the commodity, you take the drug, you take the cocaine, you take the heroin out of there, and you just replace it with ivory. And, and the reason these individuals or these organized criminal groups are getting involved in wildlife trafficking, such as illegal ivory, is that it's, it's a high-profit, low-risk crime. You can make as much money uh, dealing in ivory or rhino horn uh, in a short period of time as you can smuggling uh, heroin or cocaine. But the chances of you going into prison or in, in a lot of countries is not as significant as you if you were caught smuggling drugs or guns. So that's the reason a lot of organizations have moved into wildlife trafficking is because it's very profitable in a very short period of time and uh, the punishment may not be as significant. So your whole organization may not end up in jail uh, for 20 or 30 years if they get caught. Uh, so, so that's the reason there's wildlife trafficking uh, 
in the world and in the United States is, is really because of the profit involved in it. Okay, so we just heard from Edward on the law enforcement side. Richard, uh, what do you have to add from the uh, more policy and working on the where elephants live side? Oh, I think Ed is absolutely correct that um, these, shall I say, organized networks, I think is a, is a good general term, will traffic whatever they can make money on. Um, it's, it's my impression that there's a very simple model working here, and that is risk-benefit. They are very logical people who look at the increasing benefits possible due to, due to the price of ivory in foreign markets. Obviously, this is a very important, I hope we can talk about in a moment, but the, the, the benefits are so high because the, the value of ivory on the international market has skyrocketed to unbelievable proportions. Ed also mentioned the risk side. You know, out in the field, the chances of a poacher being caught varies from place to place. In some parks, they have a good chance of getting caught. However, in most of the range, they, they pretty much can do whatever they want with a very low risk of detention. Next is a low risk of being arrested, even if they are detected. Next is a low risk of being prosecuted, and that's something we're working on as well. And then there's also a low risk of getting a punishment, a punition, or a jail sentence that is anywhere near the the benefits that they can reap. Now, that's just talking about poachers, and they're really a very minor part of this problem. Um, they're a symptom of, of a lot of different things, including opportunity, poverty, etc. But um, on the larger scale, the traffickers that Ed mentioned, they likewise have a relatively low risk of being apprehended detected, apprehended, and adjudicated, and, and actually punished. So as long as that is the situation, we will continue to have difficulty on what we call the supply end. Obviously, the, the um, market end is something we can talk about in a moment. So what, what we're seeing is a, a growing ability of illegal traders, starting from the poacher all the way to markets frequently where it is, as Ed mentioned, commingled with sometimes legal ivory from either one-off sales sanctioned by CITES in the case of Asia or in the United States pre-convention, pre-the 1989 law. So, so those are, I think, all difficult points uh, we may want to talk a bit more about. Absolutely. So um, we had previously gone over some topics that we might cover, but what listening to the two of you brings up, you know, so many questions popping like flashbulbs in my my mind. So let's explore this subject a bit more. So um, traditional poachers have been taken over by the crime syndicates. As you were saying, it's not just it's it, poaching is created by a variety of effects. You know, poverty, emerging poor, poor government, poor detection, all all the things you just mentioned, Richard. So yeah. the, the syndicates are selling the ivory also now that we, we we're finding out in exchange for weapons funds terrorism creates civil unrest and destabilizes governments and it makes it more uh difficult to simply send a message to poachers by crushing ivory stockpiles how does an agency like the uh, fish and wildlife service even collaborating with interpol and elephant range states governments how do you meet this challenge I don't think poachers are the immediate uh, target audience, so to speak, for 
this awareness-raising aspect of our work, speaking of the crush, um, I, I, many of them are um, just not in the international communications network. Uh, and I think you're right. We're right to focus on the syndicated and organized aspects of ivory trade. That's not to say that the sort of chronic lower-level um, auto-financed and auto-motivated killing of elephants and trading in their tusks doesn't go on. It's, it's more a matter that in many places, ivory is collected um, from various sources, some very disorganized or unorganized, I should say, and then brought into this transport network. Um, this transport network obviously relies on the collusion of government officials in various places, be they border guards, be they customs officials. Um, this network is very much dependent on other sort of strata of illegal activities. And I mention that specifically because that's part of the solution. Those are the vulnerable points. First of all, this wouldn't be going on were there not the huge market that provides the financial incentives. Second, it would not take on the scale that it has taken on, even in light of this large market, were there not the logistical ability to move large quantities of ivory with impunity or with a low risk of detection. So I think those are the areas that really need to be focused on more than the immediate needs of let's go out and do anti-poaching. Sure, that needs to be done. Rule number one is to secure the resource, but really where the great gains can be made right now are in those other points, and that is the transport networks and the market. So I'm going to take this back. You had mentioned CITES, the Convention on International Trade for Endangered Species, operative word being trade. So um, they had done two one-off sales, one to Japan called the Japan Experience Experiment, and I believe that was in 1998, um, and then the second one to China. So um, this, this might be a sticky question, and if you don't want to answer it or you want to sidestep it, that's fine. Do you think those decisions by CITES uh, had an impact on what's happening in poaching and, and the syndicates, that it gave the syndicates an idea that there is plenty of ivory where that came from and more to be had, and that uh, we should support the ban on ivory in, in terms of stopping these cartels because now it's so as you were just saying it's on such a huge scale it's not about the poacher on the ground anymore it's about the transit and transport uh, uh, lines well Ed, Ed may want to come I think Ed is a better place to comment on the law enforcement aspects and I think he touched on that but let me say um, from my own experience that that first um, 1997, I believe, is when the actual uh, conference of the parties of CITES moved toward that first one-off sale. And at the time, I was working in Congo along the Cameroon and Central African Republic borders, which is really part of the uh, great heartland, uh, great part of the distribution of, of forest elephants along with Gabon, where most forest elephants still exist. And there were literally people on the river, my friends who were traders, who would trade in just normal goods, um, 
basically bringing goods from ports in Cameroon to far-flung places throughout the forest block. And when they heard the news on international radio, they misunderstood it. And basically what they said is, it's okay to trade ivory again, even though the real messages in the media, mainly the radio, were that there is a conditional sale and it involves only certain stocks and it only goes to one country at the time. That's not how that message was read at all. It was not read that way. It was read, it's okay to traffic ivory again. So, so my personal opinion on the, the immediate effect of that announcement, being misconstrued admittedly, was very negative for elephant populations. Ed, do you have anything I, to add? Ed, I think, for, I think a lot of people will admit now that the one-off sales uh, have increased uh, the, what is it, trade in illegal ivory. I mean, uh, as from the law enforcement side of it, during the you know, late 90s, uh, criminal investigations looking at the illegal ivory trade had begun to drop off. After the sales in the, you know, early 2000s and later, uh, especially during the last four or five years, there seems to be, there seems to be a message that came out that the, the ivory trade was opened again, which has increased the amount of illegal trading and criminal investigations involving uh, the illegal wildlife trade. Wow, this is this is fascinating, and I thank you both for being here. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Ed Grace and Richard Ruggiero of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Stay with us. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. 
Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back, and thanks for sticking with us. We've got Edward Grace and Richard Ruggiero of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Law Enforcement and International Conservation Programs. Uh, Edward, I have a question for you. It might seem like a really simple one, but um, what led to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Ivory Crush? How did that begin? Where did the idea come from? Uh, Really, the idea, you know, it came into motion about eight months ago, and, and the, re- the reason it came into motion was we'd seen an uptick in several investigations involving, you know, large uh, organized criminal groups. Years ago, wildlife trafficking was more opportunistic. It was maybe, you know, a poacher involved uh, in trying to feed his family or try to make some uh, you know, little amount of money just to, you know, pretty much survive. But in the last, you know, five to seven years, these, you know, organized criminal syndicates and cartels that have uh, gotten involved in both the illegal ivory trade and the rhino horn trade, uh, because they have these networks and, and, and the vast resources that they can use to run these uh, smuggling routes, they can, you know, cause the extinction of a species during our uh, during our generation, uh, and because of that, the United States, the Office of Law Enforcement, decided that you know our priority was to look at these groups, and and, and one of the things we saw was the illegal trade uh, or the laundering of illegal ivory in a legal market. So we wanted to send, even if it was just a symbolic message, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service wanted to send a message worldwide that, one, this is a worldwide problem. It's not going to be solved by just the United States Fish and Wildlife it's going to be solved by, you know, other countries. It's going to be solved by partnering with NGOs. It's going to be solved by partnering with other, you know, government agencies, both the wildlife side of it and the enforcement side of those agencies. So one thing we wanted to do is we wanted to send a message uh, that illegal ivory would not be tolerated, and we're going to do whatever we can to take the value out of that ivory. Uh, and, and that's what we came up with and, you know, started the process of destroying uh, the six tons of ivory that we've seized over uh, the last 25 years. Well, it was a very bold step, and 
I, for one, am very proud to have um, to be a part of it. Not only personally being there, uh, but knowing that my country is taking a stand uh, against poaching and for elephants. Uh, Richard, what in light of what we've been talking about, what we're understanding is that this is not an African problem. It used to be considered an African problem. It's African wildlife. Why don't they do something about it? It's become a global problem for all the reasons that you've both been discussing and and informing us of of today. So what is is at stake if we don't, for lack of a better phrase at the moment, if we don't fix this, what's at stake? Well, a great deal is at stake, and depending on, on where you are as an individual somewhere in the world, it, it may be a bit different. Some elements are certainly in common. But my great motivation, obviously, is is due to my appreciation of, of what the species is. Um, African elephants, as, as well as Asian elephants, are are extraordinary animals with not only intelligence and large size with large effects on its environment, and those are considerable. They, they affect the environment. Their environments have been co-evolved with their presence, and that's biological things like seed dispersal and finding water in the dry season and creating paths and dense vegetation in forests that then people can use and other wildlife can use. And those are very important biological issues. But from an aesthetic standpoint, elephants are extraordinarily intelligent. They have societies based on families led by matriarchs, led by older females. They're sentient animals that have a clear understanding and a clear feeling for their own mortality and the mortality of others. Maybe some of the listeners have seen videos of elephants handling bones and even tusks of um, family members and other elephants that they find. Um, they, they, they act, and I've, I've seen this multiple times, when elephants come across a carcass they actually gather around frequently and and have body language that clearly indicates that they're mourning. Their behavior changes. They pass bones around. They basically pause and act sad, if I can use that term. It's, it's the parsimonious explanation for the change in behavior you see when elephants encounter carcasses or skeletons of, um, of elephants in the bush or in the forest. So... What we're dealing with is an extraordinary species that, as Ed said, risks to be lost in the wild in our lifetimes. And, and that's a staggering loss because it is not part of a, of a normal climatic or evolutionary change. It's at the hands of mankind. And it's at the hands of mankind due to basically greed and vanity. Um, so so that, that's a, a very heavy onus, I think, for humanity to not allow those characteristics to destroy wonderful species and their habitats. Now, quick, quickly on what's in it for Africans. Let's talk about Africans because they bear the brunt of the destabilizing of governments and local economies that is caused by this trade. When you have insurgent groups such as the Lord's Resistance Army operating in places where there's not very much governance at all, in fact, they pick very isolated places, can you imagine what it's like to be a poor villager when there are people running around with heavy weapons, raping and pillaging, and getting sustenance from the illegal ivory trade? 
And we know that goes on, and there's more than just the Lord's Resistance Army doing that sort of thing. So destabilization of, of governments and the kind of, I use the word terror, that's the way they would describe it and have described it to me in the field. They're terrorized by these large forces of guys running around with heavy armament, and that situation obviously has tremendous effects on human rights and on quality of life. So there's an obvious stake there as well, and for the governments themselves who may be destabilized. So there's basically something in this for everybody. As I've often said throughout various episodes, um, people can listen to previous episodes that give some background about what both Ed and Richard are, are discussing today, but... Uh, as I've often said, conservation is about people. It is a long-term process. It's not a short-term process, and it affects everyone, and that it is also multi-layered and not linear. And Richard, your uh, response just then beautifully highlighted exactly that. So I hope our listeners understand this is not just about loving animals or loving elephants. There is a whole lot more at stake here than just um, saying I love animals. There's there's so much more going on at play, not only here in the U.S. with our U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but on the ground where elephants live. So, Richard, I have a quick question for you. From the scientific and biological perspective, what is the baseline for a, very, for a viable wild population of elephants in terms of genetic diversity and range for them to survive us, humans. And uh, so by historical comparison, where and how many elephants are we losing to the ivory trade, to the, to the, to the cartels, to well, the loss of our world? There are a bunch world? of good questions in there. Um, how much we're losing to the cartels is difficult to isolate from the sort of background noise, if I can use that term. But there are reasonable estimates, and, and everything I'm going to speak about is estimates. And those estimates about numbers in the past are, you know, let's say vaguer. We can be less confident about than those um, coming from more recent times when we use scientific methods to estimate elephant populations and their distributions. So to quickly try to sort that out, reasonable estimates for current losses is probably between 35 and 40,000 elephants per year in Africa at current rates. Um, many of my folks who look at this very closely think it's more like 40 or even more, and some more conservative estimates would be 30,000. So that's an important point because the first part of your question is, Obviously, we want to maintain populations, and that's a numerical issue. If elephants um, have a 2% annual reproductive rate, any, and then, of course, natural mortality, any losses beyond that due to poaching will bring elephants in the negative direction in terms of numbers. Well, numbers is one thing. You mentioned genetics, which is an astute point, but that's a very complex question. Trying to conserve the complexity of the various genomes of elephants around is certainly a very important issue. There are populations that have relatively rare genetic composition, um, particularly in forest zones where populations tend to mix much less. And those in seasonal habitats like deserts where they're very closely adapted to extreme conditions. And I can't give you a specific answer other than that needs to be considered to answer your question. Thirdly, 
also a point of your question is, what about habitat? Elephants range widely. They need very large habitats in order to survive, not only because of their food needs, but because as climate change or periodic droughts um, hit Africa, it changes very much the vegetation and the water they rely on. So if they have very restricted areas, those areas being restricted by human activity, not just poaching, but agriculture and settlement of growing human populations, that's very difficult too. So scientifically, we need to understand how much room is needed in various places, what are the sort of bottom line numbers we, we need to maintain for fitness and genetic diversity, and so it, you can tell it's, it's very complex on a general scale, and in forest zones in particular, those considerations are even more important. Edward, do you have anything to add to that from the law enforcement perspective? No, I think uh, Richard covered that. Okay, then I'm going to move on to another question. We don't have to spend a lot of time on this one, but uh, we've covered... The two of you today have covered a lot of territory, which um, we all know working not only in conservation or me personally as an NGO, that this kind of work requires funding and um, funding on magnitudes of, of, of scale, scales of magnitude, excuse me. So where does the funding for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, Africa programs come from? As I mentioned before, there there is... Um an authorization that is the, if we're talking about the African Elephant Conservation Fund, that's subject to annual appropriations under that act, under the authorization that that act provides. So, so that's, that's done year to year and decided by Congress. Okay, so that's federal. So Correct. on top of that, um, listeners, you, you can certainly support what's going on and take part and become involved in elephant conservation by supporting a large variety of NGOs that do direct work on the ground supporting uh, elephant conservation, which is supporting rangers, uh, rapid response teams to uh, report what's going on, and of course to tally where elephants are and elephants' mortality. Uh, another little quick question. With the Clinton Global Initiative, is any funding coming for this type of work? You're specifically from that uh, pile or pot of funding? No. Okay, so that's completely separate. That was a simple answer. Thank you. <laughs> so this is, this is a, a one that I think will be a little not quite so simple. Are we losing the war against poaching and saving elephants? And do we have time to win all the required hearts and minds to make conservation successful? Or has it come to a point where we just must protect what we have left? Well, I, I think it depends on where we're talking about. You know, it, Africa is a vast continent and conditions vary. And, and, and let me just remind our listeners that Asian elephants uh, are also in this mix and have uh, similar but their own set of of difficult circumstances. But in Africa, some populations are secure to the point due to their restricted range, and we mentioned that before, um, there are unnaturally high densities of elephants in some places where they're protected, ironically. And of course, the vast majority of their range is either very depressed numbers or, or completely absent. Um, your question, are we, are we winning the war? Uh, to use that term, I, I think it's more or less appropriate. Um, 
right now we're not winning the war. In some places we are, but overall the numbers are going in the wrong direction. So, um, you know, the, the, the positive side of a very negative situation is that, that sometimes in life I think things have to get really bad before people pay enough attention and motivate resources and energy to deal with them. I think we're there. Um, as I said, I've been watching this situation for over 30 years, and um, in many places we're reaching desperate proportions on elephant poaching. That's not to say everywhere. Um, there are some very secure areas, and, and certainly uh, we want to maintain those. But in terms of hearts and minds, I, I think the hearts and minds are where the real progress is being made, even more so than in the field. You know, the Internet, and indeed, radio shows on the Internet like yours, do a great deal to stimulate awareness and the personal will, and hopefully the political will to do something about this. That's where we're making progress. We need to make more. But that's that's the leading edge of what I think can be turned into a positive situation. So um, I have a question. Um, we, and, uh, we typically, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, Edward. And I was going to say uh, real quickly, I think the most important thing uh, that was done was done in July when the president of the United States, Barack Obama, you know, issued an executive order uh, that deals with the combating wildlife trafficking. And, and what that has done is that has now brought uh, the government together, the government resources, which it's times can be limited resources for wildlife trafficking, you know, from State Department, uh, USAID, United States Fish and Wildlife Service, the Defense Department, uh, 16 other different agencies have now been brought together uh, to look at wildlife trafficking and how are we going to develop a strategy, which is part of the executive order, over the next three months to bring all those resources from all these different government agencies to bear to help fight wildlife trafficking, along with setting up, you know, the advisory council uh, to also help, you know, advise these agencies on, you know, taking these limited resources. What it, what is very important or what steps do we need to take to combat wildlife trafficking? And, and I think that was the big uh, step in, you know, not just winning the hearts and minds of people involved in uh, protecting wildlife, but also showing that the U.S. government uh, believes that this is a priority. Thank you very, very much for bringing that up. That was a huge part of um, filling in, in in this discussion. So it, it makes a stand that and, and also answers part of that question of what's at stake and who the stakeholders are. And certainly the U.S. is part of that. Um, so in a little tangent of that, in, in terms of security, law enforcement, and pr- protection, uh, this is a question that's come in via an, an email uh, from one of our listeners. What, do you, what does the U.S. What, what do you think or what is the, the Fish and Wildlife Service, Service position in regard to on-the-ground paramilitary training and operations to defend wildlife? Not here necessarily in the U.S., but for elephants, especially in light of poachers and hunters using similar high-tech weaponry. And as trained law enforcement offers, would you support replacing uh, anti-poaching security personnel to be better trained and prepared to fight the kind of battles against elephants that, they're, that we're seeing today? 
Well, from the Office of Law Enforcement, I, I don't think we uh, we wouldn't believe that you need to replace these, uh, you know, rangers and poacher uh, rangers with uh, paramilitary contract outfits to come and protect the wild, to protect the elephants, to protect the rhinos. What the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is doing, and along with you know the State Department and help with USAID, is we send some of our agents over uh, to Africa every year. Uh, this year alone, we have two training sessions at the International Law Enforcement Academy in Botswana, along with another training session at the International Law Enforcement and Training Academy in Bangkok, Thailand, where we bring criminal investigators and rangers from across Africa and even Southeast Asia uh, into one location where our special agents help train them on uh, how to do a proper investigation, how to go after not just the poacher, but also go after these large criminal syndicates, uh, because that's where you're going to make a difference. You, you need to take, off, take out the individuals that have the money and the resources to run these uh, smuggling operations. Uh, and by going into these countries and training these uh, rangers on the ground, uh, you can, you know, it's a force multiplier. It, it, it doesn't take a lot of training to get uh, these individuals uh, up to par and give them the tools and the ability to run an investigation to help, you know, help slow this trafficking down. That's, that's an excellent point. So, um, what I hear that you're talking about is there's part, part of the equation is learning the proper way to in, investigate wildlife crime. Uh, then there are, I guess part of my question was, and we don't have to address it today, um, the rangers on the ground, as Richard had spoke, spoken of before, and in the CAR, where I was supposed to go last July, there was a slaughter of elephants at, the, at Zongabai. And the rangers there, the Echo Guards, were not prepared to face the armed response that of, of the syndicates or the poachers that came in. So the question was more geared toward that. And does your training help these rangers um, upgrade their capabilities to face this kind of an armed incursion? Yeah, certainly. You, you raise a, a good topic, a fairly current topic, since those elephants, uh, you know, it's a population I know very well and uh, lived in their contiguous habitat for seven years through Congo Civil War. And what happened in CAR was due to their civil war, where actually Sudanese, for want of a better term, mercenaries who were involved in that civil war, came down from a, a um, prefectural capital farther north and entered the area and um, attacked the elephants. Um, that situation was obviously very alarming. It's, it's not completely solved since the country still has a great deal of unrest. But, but your point is well taken. Um, perhaps even more so in a neighboring country, Gabon, which is arguably the Fish and Wildlife Service's uh, closest partner in Africa, certainly in Central Africa, mm -hmm. where their echo guards are not armed by law. They, they, they're great in the field. They know what's going on. They can get around very difficult places and find their way around the forest on rivers, etc. But they can't carry guns. 
So in order to keep them secure, keep them alive, and in order to be able to have arrest authority, um, incorporating armed individuals in, in small groups, maybe two or three per group of echo guards who have that training and arrestability is it's sort of a, a mixed team that has field people and that has people with military skills. So that's a part of governance, basically, is to help the government authorities to do their job. And uh, we think that's certainly a better solution than paramilitaries. Excellent answer. And unfortunately, I would love to go on and on and on talking with you, but we are out of time. But um, I would like our audience to know that this discussion will continue under Our Wild World discussion groups on LinkedIn. You can follow along at USFW uh, Facebook uh, and Twitter points and, of course, Wild Eyes' Facebook page, and we'll keep you posted. So one uh, very last question. I think we have a little time and get it out of the way. What will be done with the crushed ivory from Denver? Quickly, in a, in a quick sentence. Uh, we're working with the uh, Association of Zoos and Aquariums here in the United States to develop a uh, display through zoos throughout the United States that will talk about the plight of elephants. Excellent. So on that note, we'll, once again, you can follow along uh, with our various posts and the various agencies along Facebook, Twitter, and our website. And I would like to thank you both, Edward and Richard, for an excellent episode and giving so much information. And until next time, this is Our Wild World. So thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.